Good morning again, church. I pray you are all well this morning. Today we are starting our first study together. It will be a short study, about three weeks in length, but I hope it is a profound study as we work through the book of Jude together. Now why do I say that it, I hope it will be a profound study for, the each, for each of you? Well, because it is the book of Jude seems so relevant for the times that we are facing today. And to help us understand what I mean by that, I'd like to first consider the context before we get into the sermon this morning. And to help us consider the context, we'll be looking at Jude chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So we see from the first word in verse 1, the author of the book is Jude. Jude is the brother of James, who is one of the leaders of the early church and also the author of the book of James. But as we read in Galatians 1.19, it says that James is also the Lord's brother, or Jesus' half-brother. So if James and Jude are brothers, and Jude and Jesus are half-brothers, then Jude and Jesus must be half-brothers as well. Well, why didn't he just say that? He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Well, this question takes us to the audience in whom Jude is writing to. Most likely, the audience who Jude is writing to were Jews who have become Christians. And because of that, as Douglas Moo points out, Jude wants it to be known to his readers, these former Jews who are now Christians, that their physical relationship with Christ did not bring them spiritual benefit. Thus, who who we are related to or who we are descendants of, church, that does not save us. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We must believe that truth. We must trust that truth. And above all else, we must contend for that truth all the days of our lives. And this contending for the truth plays into the historical context in which Jude is writing. As Jude writes this letter, he is living during a period of time where Christianity is under severe persecution. Furthermore, there are false teachers sneaking into the church at this time, spreading heresy. And a question likely in the minds of the readers of the book of Jude with persecution breathing down their neck, with heresy coming into the churches, is God faithful? Is God faithful? Or were these individuals persecuting us? Are these heretics coming into the church? Will they get away with evil? I read a joke about a cashier who asked, cash, check, or charge? After folding the items a woman wished to purchase. And as she fumbled for her wallet, the cashier noticed a remote control for a television in her purse. Do you always carry your TV remote? she asked. No, she replied, 
but my husband refused to come shopping with me, so I figured this was the most legal, evil thing I could do to him. It's a funny joke, but it brings us back to the question. Is God always faithful in judging evil? Or does evil ever go unpunished? The theme of our sermon this morning or the thesis statement that we will be working through this, this morning from the sermon, is this. As Christians, we are to courageously and mercifully contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of his teachings, and not sensually or conveniently follow false teachers who deny the lordship of Christ because it will lead to eternal judgment. Again, as Christians, we are to courageously and mercifully contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of his teachings, and not sensually or conveniently follow false teachers who deny the lordship of Christ, because it will lead to eternal judgment. Our passage this morning is Jude chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses one through seven. And let me encourage each of you to follow along in your Bible this morning. Jude chapter one, verses one through seven. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ." Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come humbly to your word this morning, Father, open our eyes, our ears, and soften our heart. Father, you are holy, you are just, and we are not, Father. But you have came into this world to save sinners from their sin. Let us contend for that truth in all that we do. There is a broken, dead, fallen world in our midst of unbelievers who deserve your wrath. Father, let us love them. Let us be bold and merciful in sharing this gospel truth with them in all that we do so that they may be saved from your judgment. Equip 
us this morning, I pray, Father. Help my lisping, stammering tongue. Give me the words that these dear children need to hear. Let us, let us be in all of you this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon has three points this morning. And point number one is this. As Christians, we are to courageously and mercifully contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of his teachings. We'll be looking at verse 3 this morning for that. Verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude starts with the recipients of the letter. To the beloved, to the elect, to Christians. These Jews who have left Judaism and now become Christians. And he said, I was very eager to write to you a very different type of letter about our common salvation, about our deliverance from sin. I wanted to celebrate you, God's gift to us. But we see here, church, that something has come up. And Jude writes, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend for the faith, to struggle for, to agonize for, to battle, to fight, to vie with intense effort for the faith. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, to fight with everything you have for the faith. Because you see, church, we live in a world where people fight over everything. People will fight over anything. But I'm here to tell you this morning, not everything is worth fighting for. Not everything is worth contending for. Not everything is worth agonizing for. Additional power, additional money, any worldly passions, it is not worth agonizing for. But you want to know what is worth fighting for this morning? It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We are called to contend for the faith church this morning that we are sinners who need a Savior. We're called to contend this morning that Jesus Christ was a sacrifice for the sins of His children. That He died, that He rose again. We are to contend that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. And we will do well, church, this morning to contend, to strive, and defend each and all of these theological truths concerning who Jesus Christ is in the face of a hostile world. But contending for the faith, it is not only played out in what we believe. It is not only played out in our theology, church. It is also played out in how we live. Contending for the faith is played out, church, in our morality. Dr. Thomas Constable said this, that Jude has two major concerns here. That his readers do not be led astray by false teachers, 
And he prays that they will instead take the initiative and contend for the faith. But the final argument for faith in the world is not an argument of words, but is the argument of life. We are to contend for the faith, church, as well, in how we live our lives. You see, the world around us, it says that sexual immorality, that it is no big deal. But we must contend with our lives that sexual immorality, it was not be named even among the saints. The world around us says that it is okay for our children to watch whatever we want they want. But we must contend that we are to bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. The world around us says that we are phonies, that we are sinners. They'll say, well, you sinned against me. You are a hypocrite. And church, we must contend and humbly admit that we are sinners and repent and then contend that the only way a sinner can be saved is through Jesus Christ who said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. But Wes, is this really going to make a difference in the world? Have you seen the current state of America, Wes? What is the point? Why should I risk contending for the faith in this hostile world? As the reformer John Calvin puts it, for if earthly soldiers do not hesitate to fight when the result is doubtful and when there is a risk of being killed, how much more bravely ought we to do battle under the guidance and banner of Christ when we are certain of victory? We are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, because thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We contend because this is the only truth, church, that saves sinners from their sin, and the world needs this message. We contend so that sinners be saved from their sin. They escape the wrath of God and they are reconciled with Him forever. That is why we contend for this faith because it is the only truth that saves. Which leads us into our second point this morning. Be warned, Christian. Do not sensually or conveniently follow false teachers who deny the Lordship of of Christ. Be warned. Do not sensually or conveniently follow false teachers who deny the lordship of Christ. Verse 4. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know this morning, concerning false teachers or concerning false teaching, it is no shock to God. It says that long ago, certain people have crept in unnoticed that were designated for this condemnation. The prophets, they spoke about it. The apostles, they spoke about it. Jesus Christ himself predicted in Matthew 24, 11, that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. 
God in his omniscience, in his all-knowingness, if you will, knew all about these false teachers. He knew all about their teachings, their reputations, their immorality, their pride, their deception before any of this was written, before it was prophesied by the prophets, before the creation of the world. God knew about that. And since he knew about their sins from eternity past, he also knew about the judgment that they incurred on themselves. This false teaching within the church, it is no surprise to God. And what do these false teachers do? It says that they, certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing with false teachers, church. They don't show up banging drums. They don't show up with a sign around their neck that says false teacher, that says heretic. And they don't come marching in through the front door. No, instead they sneak in the back door. And they are cunning. And they worm their way into the discussion. They worm their way into the Sunday school. They worm their way into leadership positions without anyone even batting an eye. And then when they are there, they slowly begin to corrupt the sound doctrine within the church. One of my favorite pastors to listen to, H.B. Charles, told a story a couple years ago about a church which inscribed the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 on the outside wall of their historic building, which read, We preach Christ crucified. But over time, ivy slowly grew up the wall without anyone noticing And it obscured the last word in that statement so that the words now read, we preach Christ. And over time, again without anyone noticing, the ivy continued to grow up the wall until it covered the next to last word so that the only thing the passerby could now read is we preach It is a depressing reality and illustration of the contemporary church today whom have allowed false teachers to slowly creep and sneak and worm their way into the congregation. And what do these false teachers teach? It says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. I hear this all the time, church. They say, oh, well, God, he is only loving. Well, God, he is only graceful, and he only wants you to be happy. Therefore, indulge your flesh. Do you see the subtlety here of the false teacher? They say God's graceful. They say God's loving, all of which, church, is 100% true. 
But then they say, because of that, because of that, this is an opening for us. This is an excuse for us to indulge our sin and to indulge our flesh. That movie with some nudity in it, oh, don't worry about it. God is graceful. A little pornography, oh, God's loving. He wants you to be happy. Those racy emails you're sending to a coworker, oh, indulge your flesh. Let grace abound, they say. Church, do not be deceived. It is a lie. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Do not be deceived, church. It is a lie. And go on. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Again, note the subtlety here. They deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They do not deny here that Jesus can save. The denial here is that Jesus is Lord. And they promote the idea that we can be saved, but we don't need Jesus Christ as Lord over our lives. They say, oh, I want, <clears throat> they say, I want Jesus to save me, but I don't want to live by his rules. I want to live by my rules. I want to live by my law. It is a subtle, false teaching, to church, but it is from the depths of hell. And why do I say that this morning, as Jim Shaddix points out, if we deny Jesus Christ as Lord, then we deny him as our Savior. It is a warning this morning, church, do not follow false teachers who cater to and who accept your sin, for they deny the Lordship of Christ. And if we deny Jesus Christ as Lord, then we will deny him as Savior as well. Which leads us to our third and final point this morning. God always has, and he always will, deal justly with the unrighteous. We'll be looking at verses 5, 6, and 7. But I want to remind you of the context, again, in which Jude is writing. The Christian church during this time is facing extreme persecution at the hands of the wicked. False teachers are coming into the church. They're perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. They're denying our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the question remains, is God faithful? Will he deal justly with the wicked? Or will the wicked win out? Will these persecutors, will these false teachers, will they win out? And Jude here brings up three instances to remind and to showcase to his readers that God always has and he always will be faithful in dealing justly with the ungodly. In verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 5 here is referring to Israel, God's people, who God saved out of Egypt. If we remember the story, he sent plagues. He parted the Red Sea. He swallowed up Pharaoh's army supernaturally. God saved, he guided, and he provided his people. 
And yet in Numbers Numbers 14, we see that despite all of that, they did not, Israel did not believe that God would deliver them from the people who occupied their promised land. Thus everyone over the age of 20, because of their unbelief, was destroyed and perished in the wilderness. Why? Because God always has and he always will deal justly with the unrighteous. In verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, verse 6 is one of the more confusing and vexing verses in all of Scripture. And when I read it for the first time, I thought, what did I get myself into starting in Jude with these dear people? I have probably read more on this verse than any of the other six verses combined. And because of that, my explanation will probably be the shortest. Scholars typically fall into one of three camps in terms of who this text is referring to. Some think it refers to a fall of angels that's not recorded in scriptures. Some think it refers to the original fall of Satan. And some think it refers to Genesis 6, where these same scholars believe that fallen angels had relations with women which led to an evil race and caused God to flood the earth. Now, I think this might be a great conversation starter for you all today during our love meal downstairs. I can see much debate going on at the tables over which one it is. But the point is really simple that Jude's communicating here. That just as God has dealt justly with his people Israel, God also dealt justly with the angels who ultimately rejected him, who left God's presence and they left their position of authority. Because God always has and he always will deal deal justly with the unrighteous. And in verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This obviously refers to Genesis 18 and 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great and their sin was so grave that God sent two angels to Sodom. And it says that the men of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house that they were in so that they may know them, so that they may indulge in sexual immorality, pursue unnatural desire, and at this time, God is fed up. And it says in verse 24 of Genesis 19, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. Jude says they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Why? Because God always has and he always will deal justly with the unrighteous. And church, because God throughout history always has dealt justly with the wicked, why would we side with, why would we follow then, why would we align ourselves with anyone else? Well, Wes, in the current culture, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. 
You see, society says there's plenty of ways for me to be saved. You see, society says there's plenty of things I can put my trust in. Society says I can indulge my flesh and my sexual desires. And society says, enlighten yourself, preacher boy. You can't judge me. Pastor Paul Fritz told the story about an umpire named Babe Peneely who once called Babe Ruth out on strikes. And when the crowd booed with sharp disapproval at the call, the legendary Babe Ruth turned to the umpire with disdain and said, there are 40,000 people here who know that that last pitch was a ball. Suspecting the umpire would erupt with anger, the coaches and players braced themselves for Ruth's ejection. However, the cool-headed Peneli replied, Maybe so, babe, but mine is the only opinion that counts. Church, we need to realize that God's justice, His judgment is the only one that counts. God always has despised sin from eternity past. Psalm 11.5 says that the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God in his perfect justice, it is the only justice that matters, church. Deuteronomy 32.4 says that God is the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are justice. He is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And listen carefully, church. Romans 14, 12 says, Each of us will give an account of ourselves before God. God despises sin. He is perfectly just and we will give an account. So what do we do? What do we do with that information this morning? What do we do concerning the fact that we have a perfect, holy, sinless, good God and that we are not? What do we do? I will start by addressing the non-Christian who is here this morning. And non-Christian, please hear me. It is not my goal this morning to scare you. It is my goal this morning to lovingly share with you the only way that we can see salvation. It is a fact. God will condemn the unrighteous. God is holy. He is perfect. He is just. And we, we are not. Thus, because of our sin, we have not only separated ourselves from God, we have incurred on ourselves God's most holy judgment. But non-Christian, I have good news this morning. Please listen to me. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. No, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The God of this world, he broke into his created order as Jesus 
Christ to save sinners from their sins. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He was tempted with sin, just like you or I. But he was spotless. He was sinless. And the wrath that we deserve for our sins, the wrath I deserve for mine, Jesus Christ, he stood in our place as a substitute. The wrath we deserve, Jesus Christ took that wrath on himself on the cross. And he was crucified, and he was died. And he was buried. But sin had no case against him because he did not sin. He was God, he was sinless, and he defeated sin and defeated death through his work on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the grave. Non-Christian, you may be sitting there this morning thinking, yes, I am a sinner. I am guilty. I'm feeling convicted. I understand, Wes. I deserve the wrath of God. How do I escape that this morning? How do I change my status before God? How can I be saved? Acts 16 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This morning, repent and seek forgiveness of your sin, non-Christian. And the only one who can forgive you of your sin, and that's Jesus Christ our Lord. And He not only will pardon your sin, He not only forgives you of your sin, but that perfect life He lived, He will clothe you in that righteousness. Thus reconciling, reconciling you to God through eternity. Let today be the day that salvation is yours. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for your reconciliation back to God. And now to the Christian that is here this morning. Jude calls these Christians in the face of persecution, in the face of false teaching, to contend for the faith. But how does our understanding, how does our practice of contending for the faith change when we understand that God will pour out his wrath on unbelievers? Think about it for a second. The holy, perfect, just, eternally powerful God, he will pour out his wrath on your co-worker who does not believe. He will pour out his wrath on your neighbor who does not believe, on your friend who does not believe. And church, it gives me no pleasure to share this with you this morning, but he will pour out his wrath on your family member who does not believe. This should have a profound impact on how We contend for the faith. I have seen too often people contend for the faith where their academic superiority or proving their intelligence seems to be their motivating factor. I have seen individuals contend for the faith that are contentious and that winning an argument seems to be their only motivation. Or I've seen too many individuals that are just too indifferent for the souls of the unregenerate to contend for the faith at all. 
brother Christian, sister Christian, we must contend for the faith in a way that we embrace and we accept and we welcome the call to share with the lost the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do it not to win an argument, not to prove how smart we are, not with a sense of indifference, but to contend so that men can be reconciled back to God forever. James 5.20 says that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Church, we contend for the faith so that we can be agents who God uses to restore our fellow man back to himself. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Thus, it is my prayer that we as a church body contend for the faith in the way we deny our fleshly desires, in the way we reject the lifestyles of the world, and in the way we proclaim and share the gospel message with others. Titus 3 says, For we Christians, we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hated one another. Meaning we, outside of the righteousness of Christ, were just as wretched as any unbeliever. But 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He's our atonement for our sins. And listen closely, and not only ours, but also the sins of the world. Thus, let us be bold. Let us be patient. Let us be merciful with the world as we contend for the faith. And as ambassadors for Christ, let God make his appeal through us. As sinners saved by grace, two sinners in need of God's grace, let us graciously implore them in all that we do. Be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Together, let us fight the good fight. Let us wage the good warfare. Let us contend for the faith to bring back sinners from their wandering so that they may escape death. To God be the glory for that call, Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, my heart is heavy. Lord, we all know someone who is not saved. Father, I pray we love them well. We contend in a way that is merciful, that is bold. Lord, let us not be contentious or showy or think we are anything special. Lord, before you gave us the grace we need to have faith, we were just as wretched as anyone else. Father, we all know someone who is not saved. Father, we pray for their hearts this morning. We pray for opportunity that we can speak with them, that we can love them, and that we can share this gospel message. Father, give us a heart of empathy, concern, and love for these dear individuals. We thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.